there. Welcome back to another episode of Crime and Coffee. My name's Allison. And I'm Mike. And we're glad you're here. We sure are. Thanks for listening. And um, if you could do you know, us a big favor, if you can give us a five-star review over on that Apple podcast app, uh, and just say something nice, you know, like, um, I really love Mike's voice. It sounds charming. And boy, are these stories fantastic. Something along those lines. I think that would help us quite a bit. What about my voice? And uh, I was just going to say, Allison sounds like a buxom beauty. Something along those lines. Her lips are quivering with um, excitement. I'm not say. buxom. Not excitement. Um, uh, anticipation. Anticipation, uh, empathy, all those different things. A lot of different feelings. Yeah, whatever. You know, you, you, you're you smart people out there. You're listeners of the Crime and Coffee podcast. So, And you know, it's the season of giving. Yeah. And I don't have very thick skin, so I don't take negative reviews very well. You got a thick butt, I'll tell you that That's much. for sure. But the skin, not yeah. so much. Right, right. So yeah, thanks for listening. Please give us a review and uh, come uh, follow us on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Crime and Coffee number two. So Crime and Coffee two great well uh yeah how's your uh, week going this week um it's going well this is a different sort of episode because normally we would do this in the morning we're kind of doing it ahead of time because our daughter is turning 10 this weekend and she's having a birthday party with her girlfriends and we just you know wanted to focus on them and not being distracted with a podcast so i am sipping on a decaf espresso mm-hmm. with some coconut whipped cream i got myself um an americano so had a couple of decaf uh, espressos as well, a little bit of hot water. Uh, you know where the Americano came from? Mm-mm. During war times, when the Americans went to Europe, they were looking for like a nice cup of coffee, but like they could find in like Italy is like espresso all over the place. And they thought it was too strong. Yeah. So they're like, "Can you get like, hey, hey, I'm a, I'm an American soldier. Hey, what do you say? Uh, you put a little water in that espresso. You know what I'm saying? So basically, it's just an espresso, kind of just watered down. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, And I guess maybe, too, financially, it helps stretches or, you know, it helps stretches. It helps stretch your cup of coffee. Yeah. Hey, that's why. Well, that's actually that's a great idea. Maybe now I get to the bottom of my coffee, start adding hot water and it'll be delicious. Kind of like people re-steeping their tea. Yeah, I don't do that. Yeah, I I want to enjoy it, you know, nice in its bold form. Yeah, we're not guaranteed a long time here. But this coconut uh, whipped cream is kind of cool. It's made from coconut milk. um, So it does have a hint of a coconut flavor. Um, but it is quite tasty. It's kind of weird because like regular whipped cream, you just kind of shake it up and, you know, pop it into your coffee or whatever. And this one, it's, you got to warm it up for like 30 seconds under the sink. So it's kind of odd. It takes a little preparation and then, uh, you know, they say to clean it afterwards so it doesn't get gunked up, but I'd say it's worth it. Yeah, it's worth it. But a lot of people were like, what the heck? All the air comes out of the can and there's nothing, you can't get the rest of it out. And it's because it's like this whole process people aren't used to. Yeah. yeah. It's so if you try it, just know you got to go through like a three-step process to get it in your cup. Yeah. Besides that, pretty delicious. Yeah, so other than that, this week has been interesting. Our son hurt his knee Ugh, at his guy. baseball practice yesterday. Yeah, we were there. He- I woke up to, I was not at the practice, um, but I woke up to a uh, ice pack on the counter wrapped in like a dish towel, and I was like, oh no, what's this? Yeah. So then I woke our son up later, and he's like, yeah, I fell over the pitcher's, mo- pitcher's mound, and I think I may have popped something. I was like, oh no. Is that what he said? Pop something? Yeah, he said something just didn't seem right. Because that's what they say. I brought him into the uh, urgent care today. And they're pressing around everywhere. They're like, it probably is a meniscus. Based on where I'm pressing, it feels like something's wrong with meniscus. We don't know how much till we do an MRI. So we'll give you a week. If it's still bad, we'll go in for the MRI and talk to an ortho, all that kind of stuff. So 
Yeah, they say it with the uh, meniscus, you hear a pop. Okay. So. I don't know if he used the word pop exactly, but something wasn't right with it. Well, I was asking him yesterday, did you feel a pop? Did you feel anything? He's like, no, it just hurts. Okay, so I was like, so okay. Hopefully it's nothing and he just strained it. But right now he's on crutches for the next week. And, you know, a 13-year-old boy who, you know, is awkward in walking yes, is going to be even more awkward on crutches. So it's it's going to be interesting. Can't chew gum and walk at the same time, <laughs> much less go on crutches with we just the backpack. We just had to get him into bed before this, prop his leg up, and he, he puts himself at the foot of the bed. I'm like, no, no, buddy. You got to get yourself closer to the head of the bed. Well, my boss is like, how's he doing, the poor little guy? I'm like, he's living his best life right now. He's just enjoying not having to head, you know, go do anything and not pick up his room or anything like that. He's just laying there and having everything brought to him. Yeah, exactly. We're waiting on him. But I did tell him I want him on those crutches to get used to him because otherwise school is going to be a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. So hoping for the best for the little guy. Yeah, exactly. So other than that, it's business as usual. Nice. And maybe we can just dive right in here. What do you think? I'm in. Okay, so it's me presenting this week. Now, I'll try not to um, write down a wrong name this week. Okay, so this story does not contain a Sylvia, Mike. Sylvia, no Sylvia. I will write no Sylvia. As you pulled out of your hat last week. I'm not sure where you got that. I think that was two weeks ago. So it was like, uh, yeah, and what about Sylvia? You're like, what in the hell are you talking about? (laughs) Like, who in the hell is Sylvia? You you came back and listened to it just to make sure. Yeah, and I never heard myself say any Sylvia. So Hey, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Can't win them all. Exactly. So this is the story of John List. And um, the story starts on November 9th, 1971. And this morning began as any typical day began in the List home. Um, It started with 13-year-old Frederick, 15-year-old John Jr., and 16-year-old Patricia. They were woken for school, and they sat with their 46-year-old accountant father eating their breakfast, as they did pretty much every morning. And they sat at the kitchen table in their sprawling mansion, which was equipped with a ballroom, a marble fire, or many marble fireplaces, and a huge Tiffany skylight. You know, not a lot of these stories, at least none that we've done so far, start in a very well-off home. Yeah, so this was a big, sprawling, beautiful home. Okay. Um, But unfortunately for the family, it was anything but a normal morning. Their father, John List, had meticulously been working on a horrific plan for months that would end... Oh, God, no. In his family's death that very day. Son of a bitch. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. So, John Emil List was born on September 17th, 1920. Emma? Emil, E M I L. Oh, I was going to say Emma. Okay. Uh-uh. Emma. Jo- uh, John Emil List. He was born on September 17th, 1925, in Bay City, Michigan. He was described as an aloof, cold man with very little friends. Um, wasn't very social. You know, not your buddy that you'd sit in a bar and have a beer with. Okay. Yeah. yeah somebody just kind of, yeah, doesn't doesn't carouse with uh, too many people. Exactly. Okay. He was the only child of a very strict German or very strict German parents. And his mother was considered to be very overbearing. Um, they were devout members of a Lutheran church, which I grew up Lutheran. Yeah, we just explained it to our kids. We were talking about religion at the dinner table, and they were like, uh, so what's Catholic? And we kind of said, you know, Mary is the mother of God, and they you know, bowed on her. And then they're like, what's Lutheran? We're like, well, it's kind of Catholic light. That's what <laughs> I've heard. Like, it's a light version of Catholicism. Yeah, and I would I was not raised in a devout Lutheran home. My parents were like, ah, oh, we're sleeping in on Sunday. Right. 
So, so anyway, they family. are devout. They did not skip church. Okay. In 1943, he enlisted in the U.S. Army. He served in World War II as a lab technician. And after he was discharged from the Army, he enrolled at the University of Michigan. And he earned his bachelor's degree in business administration. And he then moved on to earn a master's degree in accounting hmm. and was commissioned to second lieutenant through ROTC. And in November of 1950, he was called to serve in the Korean War. Uh, While he was stationed in Virginia, John met Helen Morris Taylor. She had she was a widow. She lived nearby um, with her daughter, Brenda. And apparently Helen had tricked John into marrying her. Never a good way to start a marriage. (laughs) Uh, People don't trick your husband into marrying you. Usually ends poorly. Yeah, doesn't end well. So on December 1st, 1951, they got married in Baltimore, Maryland. She had lied and said that she was pregnant. Mm. After the wedding, um, the family moved to Northern California. And when John discovered Helen's lie, he refused to break their vows because of his devout religious beliefs. Yeah, divorce is bad. Yeah, and you know, when you're lying and saying you're pregnant it's going to end in either you lying and saying you had a miscarriage or having to fess up because where the hell's your baby bump right you know it's yeah. not gonna end well a lot of things a lot of expectations when you say you're pregnant yeah instead of just like a little white lie exactly um and the, yeah the worst thing about lying is you got to keep on remembering what you said so yes. you know maybe you have a, an alcoholic drink or something or it was like hey i thought you were pregnant and it's like no oh yeah i am Whoops. oh uh oh i thought this was non-alcoholic uh, right. wine right right um, and that's just like the thing in our house, like, don't be a liar because once you're somebody who lies, anything that comes out of your mouth, I'm not going to believe. So if you, you just tell the truth, you don't have to worry about the stories you've been telling. Exactly. But apparently Helen didn't maybe think John was going to marry her unless she was pregnant. I, I'm not entirely sure why she did that. But meanwhile, they did move to California. Um, he was reassigned to the finance corps when the army realized that he had these, you know, accounting skills. He had his master's degree in accounting. Sounds like a really exciting portion of the army. Yeah, not so much. Corps. Not so much. I'm not a numbers gal. So. I picture them all inside of like a dark building, no windows, like yellow light, the yellow fluorescent light, a lot of white t-shirts, pocket protectors, those sort of things. Yeah, I picture the pocket protectors too. Calculators. Lots of calculators. Yeah, lots of them. And uh, glasses, a lot of gla- wearing uh, glasses, four eyes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like myself. Yeah. Um, so then after John's second tour in 1952, he worked for an accounting firm in Detroit and then as an audit supervisor in Kalamazoo, where he and Helen had their three children. They att- attended church each and every Sunday, and John taught Sunday school. By 1959, John had been promoted to general supervisor of his company's accounting department. Uh, though at home, things were not going so well. It was kind of rocky and unstable. It turns out that Helen was an alcoholic. Uh, yeah, never never a healthy good thing. No. Um, by 1960, um, I kind of for, I glossed over this. I, my apologies. Helen had a daughter from her previous marriage. Yeah, you said that. Did I say she had a daughter? I yep. did say, but I never said her name. Her name was Brenda. Oh, yeah, you did. Oh, my gosh. I wrote it down right here. Now I'm stroking out on this podcast. That's okay. Something about it. You put these headphones on and the brain leaks out of your ears. I I'm not sure what it is. I feel like we've talked about like this exact scenario before. 
Are you joking? Yeah, I feel like we've talked about your brain leaking out. And I was like, oh, I can't even see it. Like, I made a joke like, I can't see it. You're good. I don't think so. Okay. That's weird. Okay. Yeah, I don't think I've ever said the words, my brain's leaked out of my ears until right now. But who knows? It's a good thing it didn't. So by 1960, Brenda had married. She left the household. Brenda, the daughter of Helen. Of Helen. Yes. So she had moved out. And um, John moved the rest of the family to Rochester, New York for a position with Xerox. Okay. So they're kind of moving around a lot. Yeah. Big company at this Mm -hmm. time. Now, still but yeah the, like xerox was kind of one of the big deals like ibm kind of stuff xerox was I mean, they came up with copying basically, exactly or stole it from somebody but they were the big company that did it and you know this is back in the 1950 or early 1960 yeah um so now they're in new york and he eventually became the director of accounting services at, with xerox ah that's uh, so like when you started the story in a big house i was like an accountant with a gigantic i mean accountants make good money but mm-hmm. you know not mansion type stuff now this guy's like the head of the entire financial side of xerox Exactly. Okay. So in 1965, he then accepted a position as vice president and comptroller at a bank. So he moved out of Xerox. So maybe, you know, Xerox did pay well. I don't know. But regardless, he moved on to a bank in Jersey City, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And he moved the family into a 19-room Victorian mansion. Shit. Yep. At 431 Hillside Avenue in Westfield. And this was something that Helen had just had her eyes set on. Her heart was, you know, just set on this house. Mm -hmm. Personally, I would never want a 19-room house because I don't want to have anything to do with cleaning that 19-room house. I'm going to assume that having a 19-room house, you probably have somebody to clean the house for you. You would think so. You would. And I would hope so because, well, that would be a full-time job for sure. Or maybe Helen. Yeah, even if you're doing it, stay at home. Mm -hmm. I mean, a regular house is hard on its own. Exactly. Um, and also, really, why do you need 19 rooms? You don't. That's kind of my thoughts. Yeah, I mean, he didn't have any friends. You already went over that. Right. But apparently, this was just Helen's dream house. So, despite John's major success in work, he had been let go from many jobs. Um, it's usually, it was his personality that was rubbing people the wrong way. Hmm. And that's really what's his demise at these places he was working. Must have been a great interviewer. <laughs> he must have. And, and then- you know, maybe his credentials were really good and his previous positions really chalked up his resume it was like a lot of people want to give somebody from the armed forces an opportunity mm-hmm, and exactly kind of work his way up and he was really smart good with numbers sure but he often rubbed people the wrong way so ultimately he a lot of his positions ended in him being fired so the house was the most expensive one in an already very expensive town so that just you know kind of gives you an idea of what the price tag must have been um, so fearing that he was going to disappoint Helen, John was forced to ask his mother for a loan. And despite being distant from his father, John, even though his mom had been r- reported as being overbearing, he was considered to be close with her. So he did ask her for a loan and she did loan him the money and then in return was invited to come live with them. I guess they kind of had like a separate apartment up on the top floor of this mansion kind of like a mother-in-law suite, you might call it. Mm-hmm. So she was going to move in and live up there. Well, that's one room use. And so now we got like, you know, 15 more to fill in. Yeah. So they okay. considered it a third floor apartment. Nice. I'm assuming it had its own like kitchen and all that good stuff. So really, if she wanted to stay on her own, she could. Um, so at age 46, affording a mansion 
became nearly impossible for John because he had been fired in 1971, Mm. less than a year later from his bank job. So um, he's kind of up Schitt's Creek at this time because he's got this like immense mortgage, yet no income at this point, and Helen is not working. So John maintained the facade that he was going into work every day. He got (laughs) up, got dressed, and took the train in order to keep Helen from discovering the the truth. What did he do all day? So he would... (laughs) Uh, basically read a lot. <laughs> Just and, go out in the park and like read and feed the birds. and Yeah, and he did take the train every day. Yeah. Um, and then maintained his hours. So he was like literally out of the house all day. What a dickhead. You're still spending money on the train. And like you're obviously he's probably buying the paper. Or he's probably getting some coffee or something like that. Exactly. And, you know, he could probably be helping around the house and things like that. And yeah. instead he's, you know, just dicking around all day. Um, so... He was basically feeling at this point like he was going to be a failure for letting his family down, and he believed that he should be providing for them. It was a big thing with his church and with the religion that, you know, it's the man's job to support his family. Yeah, we went to a very Christian wedding, and that was basically it. Like, the woman obeys, and the man provides, and that's kind of how it is. And my antenna was like, "Hmm?" (laughs) You're like, I wouldn't do that shit. I was like, I don't fucking think so. (laughs) (laughs) That's definitely not how it is right here. (laughs) Um, So, uh, he spent his days, here you go, reading the newspaper and napping in the train station. Sounds very nice, actually. (laughs) I know, it sounds like hell to me. (laughs) And he basically just hung out at the train station until it was time to come home on the train he would normally come home on if he had been working he's like well 4 30 better make it on my way uh, back here i am dear hard yeah. day at work oh boy so he eventually found a lower paying job which also didn't last very long and continued to hop from job to job without any knowledge of you know his, his wife having any inkling that this was happening mm-hmm. which it sounds like they were not very close in the sense of communication. Yeah, probably not. You know, I don't even know how outright um, Helen was drinking in front of John, like if she was hiding her alcohol use. Obviously, she had lied about the pregnancy. I don't think they're a very close-knit couple. Definitely not a good couple. I mean, there's uh, we've noticed a few lies just yeah. in the story. And, the, you know, the fact that he didn't feel like he could come clean to Helen and just say, hey, this is a problem. We need to downsize. Let's yeah. let's fix this. A partnership instead of, you know, just kind of they're running their own lives, basically. Exactly. So because of his worse, worsening financial issues, John began stealing money from his mom. And uh, soon he was bankrupt. Geez. So things aren't going well. To make matters worse, the Lutheran Church had viewed poverty as a sin, which... <laughs> how the hell is that? I how is that? I don't know. I guess, I, I would only guess, but they probably say if you give everything up to God and whatever, you will always be showered with treasures or whatever, maybe. Who knows? I mean, you could say if you're sitting on your couch playing video games all day long and you're letting your family go to squalor, that's one thing. But sometimes people fall upon hard times. Right, or have some kind of addiction or whatever it might be and whatever your thought on that is. But Yeah, and I don't know how that can be considered a sin but and apparently it was okay and he never considered going on welfare because he was too embarrassed and too proud to do this well that's like part of the problem with it i mean at least now i think they have just like credit cards and stuff um so you, as long as you pick the right things the wick things you mm-hmm. know women and children or whatever it's called i don't right. know i don't i have no idea who class or you know 
uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Qualifies. Qualifies. Thank you um, for, you know, for programs like that. And I, I get that it would be a tough pill to swallow to put your tail between your legs and have to ask for help. It's not an easy thing. That's why it's there, though. Exactly. I mean, it is why it's there. Other. I have no problem with people using it. So, and he did not want to violate any of his principles of self-sufficiency that he had learned from his father. So, he did not seek any financial help too during proud. this time. Exactly. Uh, even though he was too proud, even though he milked his mother dry. Right. He's stealing from his mother, yet he's too proud to go onto welfare. It's really Ugh. ass backwards. But so, stress at home is beginning to mount. Um, not even in relation to his financial issues. Um, you know, his, his children are turning into teenagers and his daughter Patricia began to show interest in acting, which I don't see what the problem is with that. But John viewed this as a very corrupt profession and was not happy with her showing interest in this. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder why. I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of, I guess, people that act um, yeah, are looking to get big in Hollywood. Yeah, they take up different jobs like you know restaurant servers and things of that nature and staying out late and getting to know people and maybe some drug use here and there but i don't know but if that's like every actor but i don't see how that's like a bad well job. and you know she's 16 years old she's trying to find herself sure. and discover different interests well but i'm gonna go out on a limb i'm gonna say we're better parents than these people <laughs> maybe yeah. i mean i don't want to judge yeah and say that we have a better marriage right. or but mike i i'm still going to work every day when i get in my car okay i promise as far as i know <laughs> Um, but she was also said to be experimenting in both witchcraft and marijuana Ooh, as well, okay. which John was not a fan of. The devil's lettuce. <laughs> exactly. Witchcraft. Wow. And witchcraft. Yeah. This chick's uh, out, out, yeah, getting into some stuff. And John was not happy that his children appeared to be turning towards the sinful culture of the 1970s. Ooh, listening to all sorts of rock music. Yeah. You know, those psychedelic yeah. Beatles or whatever. Yeah. Beatles and the doors and all that stuff. And then apparently at this time, Helen was also concealing health issues that she had been dealing with for years. Of course she is. So they don't even know each other. They, they are. It sounds like they are two strangers living under the same roof. Yeah. You know, it's probably one of those families where they sit down to dinner and it's like, we don't talk about that during dinner. Right. So it's, basically you just talk about nothing. Yeah. How was your day, dear? Good. Um, it okay. was good. It was good. Meanwhile, she's dealing with these health issues that she doesn't even feel able to tell her husband about. An addiction and he's dealing with not being able to provide for the family it's, it's very sad the daughter's practicing witchcraft in the corner smoking weed i would imagine the children probably didn't confide much and i don't know what the relationship was with helen but it certainly doesn't sound like their dad was somebody that was open to having you know conversations about their true interests right so it's it sounds like a pretty miserable household but it was 19 rooms oh well, so you got, there's you got that a place to get away. There's a ballroom. Yeah. If, if you get somebody annoys you, you get over to room 18. Exactly. So apparently Helen had been suffering from blackouts and she was falling and dealing with vision loss in her right eye. She was rapidly increasing her alcohol intakes and becoming dependent on tranquilizers. And at the end of 1968, beginning of 1969, Helen had been diagnosed with tertiary syphilis, which she had contracted from her first husband. <laughs> I'm so, sorry to laugh, but... Uh, you know, this was all dealing with that diagnosis. But so tranquilizers, I, that's still a thing? Is that like just a downer? Like, um, I don't even know. I you mean, know, I don't... 
don't know even really what what is considered a tranquilizer. Is Valium a tranquilizer? Perhaps I'm picturing like an elephant tranquilizer. Like she shoots herself no, in the neck. No, 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 and just goes no, to sleep. We're talking night. about prescription meds. Okay, you know, pro- I'm assuming something like Valium, like Quaaludes or something. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? I, you know, I don't know. Sure, but you know, not only is she amping up her drinking she's also concealing the fact that she's got these you know neurological things happening in her body a lot of bad stuff happening yeah um and she had stopped going to church in this time too so john's dealing with this financial issues this family issues at one point in time he briefly considered suicide but because of his religious beliefs this to him was not an option um, he rationalized that if you kill yourself, you will not go to heaven. He felt, however, that if he killed his family, he would hope that they would go to heaven and that he would later have a chance to confess his sins to God and get forgiveness. Well, the you know the, the Ten Commandments, that doesn't say thou shall not kill your own family. Although it does say thou shall not thou kill. Thou shall not kill. It doesn't say anything about who. You right. just don't kill. Hmm, okay. So he's accepting that that's a sin. Yeah. But he's saying that he would give himself time to be forgiven by God, thus deeming him fit for heaven, where he would then oh. be reunited with his family. Got it. That actually makes sense through a uh, you know, religious point of view, I guess. Yes. So he never he, he he realized that killing his family would be a sin. He just hoped he would be forgiven down the line. Well, if you follow everything, then like everybody goes to heaven basically as long as you believe. As long as you believe. God. Yes. Yeah. So um, not that, su- I'm not supporting that. I'm just saying it's kind of funny in my notes. I put whatever happened to the Ten Commandments. <laughs> thou shall not kill. Right. But the, I think I mean, I, I had been a long time since I read the Bible, but maybe suicide is mentioned explicitly how it's like a, you know, well, sin. it's just that once you commit suicide, there's not that chance to redeem yourself. Yeah. And forget, so that that was his thought process. Yeah, got it. So he basically from here on decided to diligently work on his plan with great detail. He felt there was no going back once he made this decision this was his decision, and that was that. Well, he really needed to throw himself into something because he didn't have a job, and he was like, you know, spiraling out of control. And the f- fucking psycho decides he's going to kill his family. Complete psycho. Oh, God. So he basically described it as D Day that once you go in, there's no stopping after you start. It's like, well, motherfucker, there actually is a way to stop. Just yeah, stop. Right. So he found a old nine millimeter pistol that he had purchased at a souvenir from as as a souvenir from World War Two, and a um uh, this is so stupid but I know nothing about guns a point twenty two caliber is that how you say it or did you say a twenty two caliber twenty two caliber <laughs> God, I'm such a dork I'm That's sorry okay. That's okay um so he purchased a twenty two caliber target pistol and new ammunition and went to a shooting range to practice. So he was working on the skills. He had his two weapons ready to go. Didn't get a lot of practice shooting in the finance corps, Mm-mm. I would imagine. No, he did not. Um, he even asked his family flippantly one night after dinner what should be done with their bodies after they died. I remember talking to them about funerals, cremations, and burials, he said. I thought I was being very clever. <laughs> well... Oh. I mean, we kind of bring that up every once in a while. Not to our kids, Oh, though. my gosh. That's so funny you say that. Me and Reese went to the park today, and we were walking around, and I don't know how we got to talking about death, but she goes, Mommy, I do not want you burned. I want you buried. I'm like, you're burning me, and if you don't burn me, I'm going to go and haunt your ass. I didn't say ass, but I said, I'm going to go and haunt you. I'm going to come in your bedroom and go, ooh. 
take me out of the ground, burn my body and bones. So for whatever reason, um, she does not want me cremated. But I told her I am not going in the ground with the bugs. No, thank you. Yeah. However, I have no devious plan for anyone to be killed. Well, my mom came over uh, recently visiting from Chicago and we had the same conversation. I'm like, what do you want to do? And she's like, well, buried, obviously. I don't want to be burned. I'm like, I'm like, why? She's like, what if I'm alive while I'm being burned? I'm like, well, what if you're alive when you're being buried? Even worse to me, I yeah. guess. You can't get out of the box. Ugh. I mean, you're, you're sitting there. You can't breathe. You can't get out of the box. You got dark darkness around you. Well, I think with the whole embalming process, there's no more being buried alive. Right. That's yeah. True. Your blood is drained from your body. You're pumped full of formaldehyde. Well, I think you're dead by that point. I guess either way, you're getting pumped full of formaldehyde. And you know, we're not saying that having a conversation with somebody about what you want done with yourself after you die is weird but i guess you know if you're like a 15 year old what do you want to be done after you die like you know in our house there's nothing off topic that we're able to talk about during dinner right so it would be more of a curious thing in his case it wasn't curious it was very sinister yes he had a specific reason exactly and he thought he was being very clever from the words of his own mouth Adorable. So on the morning of November 9th, 1971, John saw his three children to school as he would on any normal day. He then took his two handguns out of his car where he loaded them. Soon Helen came downstairs for her morning cup of coffee. She was chatting with John as he walked up behind her with a nine millimeter automatic pistol and shot her once in the side of the head, mm. killing her instantly. He later said, I approached them all from behind so that they wouldn't realize till the last minute what I was going to do to them. He was very flat about everything that happened. It was just like, well, this is how it was, and this is how I did it, and this is why I did it. Yeah, I clearly laid it out. I'm telling you exactly what happened, and that's that. Very unemotional, but I think that's just how he was as a person. I think there really was no emotion there. Mm. So he, well, the emotion would have stopped him, probably. You would think, yes. So if he had emotion, that would have helped, you know, prevent the deaths. Unfortunately, exactly. But. So from here, John heads upstairs to his mother's third floor apartment. Um, Alma was her name. So Alma had been fixing her breakfast, and John gave her a kiss. Alma questioned the noise that she had heard from downstairs, and John gave her a vague answer. He then placed the gun to the side of her temple and pulled the trigger. Wanting to avoid dragging her body down to the ballroom with Helen's, he tossed a towel onto her face and left her exactly where she had fallen, saying that she was too heavy to move. Well, I mean, makes sense. Yeah, and she was a small woman. I saw pictures of her, but I guess taking somebody from three floors, who could be bothered? Yeah. Um, and it's really just disturbing because they have the crime scene photos online. Yeah. It's just awful. Um, so then John went back downstairs where he placed Helen's body onto a sleeping bag and then dragged the sleeping bag into the grand ballroom with her body on it. So he's okay with moving Helen, but not his mom. Yes. He did not have to, they were on the first floor when this happened. So he's basically dragging her from the kitchen to the ballroom. Okay. And he laid her. preparation for the kids probably. Yep. Okay. He laid her beneath the stained glass ceiling, um, the window on window. top. Yep. Yeah. And uh, he then began to clean up the blood in the kitchen so that his children wouldn't know what was going on when they returned home from school. He sat down then and wrote letters and made phone calls to the children's teachers, his boss, and other family members, explaining why they were leaving town and that they were going to attend to a sick relative in North Carolina. And I actually saw his letters that he had written. How's his handwriting? It was neat. Yeah. Yeah, neat cursive. Hmm. 
He headed then to a post office to mail the letters and place a hold on his mail service. He stopped their milk and newspaper deliveries and headed to the bank to deposit his mother's $2,000 savings bond. So again, just very check off the box. This is what's happening. Calculated. Yep. Like, very, very calculated. At no point was he like, nah, maybe I won't send this. It's like, nope. I, well, I have to send this. This is the next step. And then I do this and we're done. Yep. And he returned home from this trip and made himself a nice little sandwich. Because apparently when you kill your family members and get ready to kill your three children, you work up a quite, you know, quite an appetite. Yeah, yeah. Fucking asshole. <laughs> um, he is sitting at the kitchen table where he had literally just killed his wife hours before. Just, Probably blood still there yeah. and whatever. And, just, you and know. I'm sure there was because I saw the crime scene photos and he did a very piss poor job of cleaning up. Well, yeah. I mean, you hit, shoot somebody in the head, it's going to splatter all mm-hmm. over the place as we've seen. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, that didn't take his appetite away. Um, what and a nut job. Total friggin' nut job. Um, in an interview, he simply said, I was hungry. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, good for you, John. Well, just again, this lack of emotion, just the factual. It's lunchtime. I'm hungry. Exactly. This is the time I eat. And then he he followed this with a chuckle. That's just the way it was. <laughs> it's just the way it was. <laughs> I made myself a ham sandwich. <laughs> I was thinking bologna. Bastard. Yeah. I don't know why I thought the asshole had ham. <laughs> anyway. Seemed like a ham guy. Yeah. Um, so now it's time to just basically wait for his children to arrive home from school. Uh, 16 year old Patricia was the first to arrive. She had called her father and said that she felt ill during the day at school and needed to leave school early. Ooh, that's throwing off his plan. Yeah. Apparently he went and got her from school. So regardless, she's home now. And once inside their home, he shot her with a um, twenty-two pistol. Could you imagine walking up to your own kid? No. I can see shooting my wife. What? I can't, what? I mean, like... I'm sorry, what? If I had a different wife, okay? If I had a different wife, sometimes, you know, I don't know, like, whatever. But your own, like, flesh and blood, like, I don't, like... Hmm. How, I mean, it's it's absolutely unimaginable. Yeah, because we're regular people. Yeah, I joking. Of course, I can never see myself I know you're joking. But I'm saying like, that's crazy enough. And then your own kid that you like created with this, like you just have, at least I have so much love for my kids. I can't imagine wanting to like, anytime I hear any story. Well, especially because he had time to change his mind, you know, like there were hours and hours and hours in the day that he could have come to his senses and said, I'm going to spare them. Like any, I, I just love kids, man. Like I, I think it's so fascinating to watch them grow even through 16. I know she's not like a small kid, but 16 years old, she's still got her whole life ahead of her. Right. Well, you're at the age where they're going to be making decisions about their future. Like, what are you going to be? Yeah. Like the world is your friggin' oyster. I genuinely enjoy talking to kids that are any age, really. You know, anything past five, it's, it's a fun time to talk to them, see what's going on in their brain. Because it's still different from our brains. You know, we worry about bills and crap and the, they have their whole lives ahead of them. Like right. they think they can be the president still. And that's kind of cool. It's like really nice to hear all that kind of stuff. And, and, and they really can, though. That's just yeah. the thing. They they truly can do whatever they want to do. Like my life's over. I want to listen to this kid. <laughs> nice, Mike. Really yeah. nice. I'm glad at 42, your life is over. Yeah. Um, obviously, our options are limited because we're adults. You know, we have responsibility you know, it's it's hard for us if we want to go back to school to change career paths and stuff like that. Whereas kids have like the roads open ahead of them. I made my Hopefully, bed anyway. I've got to lie in it. But yeah. this kid can make their own bed. Well, and the thing that gets me too is like, he could have like given them up to foster care or something. I mean, obviously, had he had a conversation with his wife, she would have understood, hopefully, 
needing to downsize rather than the alternative of death for the family. Yeah. It's just disgusting. So um, poor Patricia was shot with this twenty-two pistol. And just like Helen, he dragged her body to the ballroom. Was she in the side of the head also? I believe so. Okay. So everybody in the side of the head. Yeah. And then next home was 13-year-old Frederick. Exact same situation. And you can tell he got them just as they came home because they were still in their like coats and the gloves. Wow. So they had just walked into the house when this happened. And it's November, so it's cold yep. outside. Exactly. Um, and just like he did with helen and patricia he dragged frederick's body to rest into the ballroom and then john jr was a little bit of a different situation because he wasn't coming straight home from school he actually had a soccer game that that evening okay so what does john do he went to the soccer he went to the soccer game and cheered on his son on the sidelines he probably got off on that being like hey nobody here knows i killed my whole family and i'm gonna kill this guy too when i get home literally in the home his entire family is dead he knows he's going to do this to his son yet he's at the soccer field cheering on his son you would think he would like wouldn't care at all you know right what's the point it's all over after this maybe part of the sick game i don't know i i don't even know if he saw it as a game except a checklist and he had a soccer game that day check back home right and then check so once inside the kitchen after the soccer game, John Jr. was shot in the back of the head. Unlike back the previous the three, he did not go down instantly, and John emptied both guns into his son. Whoa. Yes. He later said, I don't know whether it was only because he was still jerking that I wanted to make sure that he didn't suffer, or if it was a way of relieving tension after having completed what I felt was my assignment for the day. And that's exactly what it was. It was his assignment for the day. Right. Like he's a fucking madman. Right. I mean, I'm surprised he didn't have like a checklist with a box in front of each thing. I'm I am too. Did they have a list or no? He did not have a list. Just in his head he made the He plan. was very methodical about the way he went about things, but no, it wasn't like check killed Helen, check killed mom. No, he didn't do that, but he did look at this as his assignment for the day and he completed it. So he ended up shooting John Jr. nine times before he dragged his body into the ballroom. You think somebody might hear something nine times in a row. I think just the way his neighborhood was positioned, you know, larger house, you don't hear as much. Um, like in our neighborhood, we wouldn't even think anything of it because we live somewhat near a shooting range. Oh, no, we don't. That's well, what thing. the hell is that? Some hillbillies shooting guns out in their property. Welcome to Florida, folks. <laughs> like my, my parents were here and you know, we hear boom, boom, boom. And they're like, what is that? Am I on gunshots? And she's like, no, really? What is that? Like it's gunshots? Like, no, literally it's gunshots. Somebody's in their backyard shooting cans. See, I just assumed it was a shooting range. No, it's not. I, I don't have that redneck mentality. It's hillbillies on Tower Road. Nice. Gotta yeah. love that. Yeah. Um, and then he had lined um, John Jr. up with the rest of the family, and he said a Lutheran prayer over their bodies, later saying, it was the least I could do. That was nice. So sweet. Nice thought, dickhead. So he then made attempts to clean up the blood and sat down to now have dinner. So not only did lunch. he have his nice little Sammy at lunch, but now he's having a nice meal. Well, he plans on living a longer time because <sighs> he's got to be forgiven. I mean, so. can you imagine his family members are literally in the next room lined up and he's sitting down to dinner. Mom's upstairs. I, I How a person could possibly think of food at a time like that is beyond my scope of imagination. Well, after he already killed his wife and his mom, at that point, like nothing else in the future, and his daughter, then nothing else in the future surprises me. 
It's yeah, just I guess like, not. And knowing he's leaving, he washed the dishes and placed them in the drying rack. Buddy, you're not going to have to worry about any of that stuff. You're going to jail. I mean, why did you... You're never coming back to your home again, yet he just dutifully put them in the drying rack, ready to go. Like Probably like it's any other again, day. Again, it's part of his list. This is what I do. Yeah. I eat my dinner, I wash my dishes, and I place them in the drying rack. <laughs> what do you do after that? He headed Went to, to sleep. sleep. Yep. Yes as his five family members lay dead in his home. He later admitted that he had slept better that night than he had in years. Wow. You would think this motherfucker's night would have been tormented with nightmares, reliving what he had just done to five people in his family. Well, in his head, all of his worries are gone. So that's like, I mean, it's, you can't use logic again. We say it every time. That's going to be one of our taglines. We're assuming logic. Yeah, can't use I guess that's true. I do. I assume how like a healthy brain would think. Yeah. Uh, and basically, he's so stressed by everything that he sees. His wife, he's stressed because he can't provide for her. And then his kids, he can't provide for them. And he sees he sees his failure in all of them. So his fucked up mind, he's good. He killed them all. And he, he, he owes his mom all the money he stole from her or took loaned. She loaned him. So she's dead. Now he doesn't have to worry about paying her back. So all of his stresses are, are gone. wiped gone. So he's like, oh, my God, load off my chest. Yes. So it's a fresh slate in his mind. And yeah. he slept like a friggin baby. So the next morning, he turned the AC down and attempts to preserve their bodies. I don't know if he thought like what this not a friggin morgue, John. Yeah. Like, I don't know how low not, you got the AC, but it's not going to get down to the three. Oh, although it might because it's November. Yeah. But then the AC wouldn't kick on. I don't know. Anyway. Um, so he did this in attempts to preserve the bodies. He turned on every light in the house and put the radio on to his favorite classical station to give the illusion that the family was home and all was well. Everybody's having a good time. Yeah. So that the neighbors wouldn't be like, huh, where's the list family? You know, it looked like they were home. So he then next sat down and wrote a five page confession letter to his pastor saying, at least I am certain that all have gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows if that would have been the case. He then went through each family picture in the home and cut his face out of each and every one of them so that if the police did come to the home or when the police came to the home, they wouldn't have a photo of him. <laughs> they could to, probably find he, it somewhere. Right? Buddy. I mean, that's you know, what, that's one of the interesting things about religion because most religions, at least the Christian ones, if you believe in God, then you're going to heaven. So it's almost like you get excited to die. If you truly, honestly believe in God, you know you're going to heaven, so you should not be afraid of anything. You know, there's, there's always the question, maybe I'm not going to heaven. Yeah, maybe there isn't heaven. But then if you're a true, true believer, you don't have the doubt, I guess. Yeah, I used to meet with our pastor years and years ago, back when you know we were going to a church, and then it was... I was almost like, so are you excited to die? Because you're, you know, you're a Christian. You're a big time Christian. I'm not official yet. You know, I'm just reading about this stuff. And he's like, well, you know, honestly, not, I don't know, Mike, you know, he couldn't, he kind of skirted around it. But I'm like, if you're a Christian, you should be super excited. to Yeah, die. but you also want to live. Like you're given this life. You have a family, a wife, kids, like you don't want to leave them. Well, according to the Bible, this is all like close to nothing once you get know, to, once you get to heaven it's supposed to be oh everything's amazing you know that's what it is like, but this maybe is you're enjoying what's happening here and this blood sure that's yeah i mean i sure am but yeah. it's i don't know i'm trying to get into the, his mind All and right. i think that's where it's coming from is like he feels good sending them to heaven like he's yeah, actually doing a he, noble deed he feels like he did them a favor yes exactly so um he cut his face out of the pictures because he didn't want them to be used on any wanted posters he left the house and locked the doors behind him 
and his next stop was JFK Airport, where he dropped his car off and took the bus to the city. He basically just used that as a ruse to, you know, make it look like he had gotten on a plane. So um, he then hopped on a train and headed to Denver. He then began to create a new identity as Robert Peter Clark. He started with applying for a social security card, and then he basically started his new life. He got a job as a short order cook, and later he worked for H&R Block as an accountant. He joined a local Lutheran church and married widow Dolores Clark in 1985. Oh my God, yep. can you imagine? New, new person. So he's married her in 1985 and moved to Richmond, Virginia from there. Wow. Yep. Holy shit. So meanwhile, back at home. Wait, wait, what year was that? This is 1985. 85? So well, he, when that's when he married her. Yeah, 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 I get it. Yeah, he had killed his family. In 1971. Yeah, so quite a quite a long time. Yeah. 14 wow. years. Wow. Yeah. Holy cow. So this is like unsolved, basically. So he's, you Not know, unsolved. They knew he did it. He's hanging out in um, Denver, working at H&R Block. Married. And no, in the meantime, he's not. 14 years go by, then he gets married again. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't like instant. No. So meanwhile, back home, the mansion is still sitting still. Lights are burning out one by one until the house was basically dark. Classical music is still playing. How friggin' creepy is that? Oh, it gives me like chills to even think about this 19 room house where there's five innocent people dead and one by one the lights are just going dark so you're back in 1971 yes we're going back to like while he's doing this business back at home meanwhile on the home front got it um so the list family was pretty reclusive it it took about a month for people to start asking questions wow yeah um, cuz you know he covered he covered the the kids no because he told everybody oh. he's going to attend to a sick fam a family member in the right. carolinas right so he covered his tracks with that but i guess some people still started to be like huh what's going on here so by the first week of december patricia's drama teacher had been having a nagging feeling that something just wasn't right so it turned out that patricia had confided in him that she was worried that her father intended to kill the whole family. Wow. So apparently he wasn't being very clever when not. he was asking the family members what they would want to have done with them. Could when you they imagine? Died. No, I can't. But that just goes to show how fucked up he was. Like when we're like laughing and joking about it at the kitchen table, we're not creepy. Right. You know, he's thinking he's being clever. Meanwhile, his daughter is starting to have fear. Cut on to him. Yes, exactly. Oh, my God. To the point that she tells a teacher. Mm-hmm um so he's probably like no no i'm sure he's just stressed and stuff like that exactly so um he also you know surprise surprise the teacher found that john to be or she he found john to be a very strange man sure i think that was pretty glaring like everybody else in his life exactly so the drama teacher convinced another teacher to go check out the list house to see if all was well neighbors noticed strange people walking around the property and decided to call the police so Officer George Zelznick and Charles Holler were on the um, first to the scene, and they looked through the windows, and you know nothing seemed amiss. Nothing that they could see was ringing any um, red flags. So the neighbors guided them to an unlocked window where the officers entered the home. 
The house was nearly dark. Eerie shadows were cast from a lone light that was lit from upstairs. I mean, really, it sounds like something out of a horror movie. Mm -hmm. Um, The house was freezing cold and haunting music piped through each room. It was probably (laughs) like one of those systems that played in each room. Yeah. It sounds horrifying to me. They followed their flashlight beams from room to room until they came to a set of curtains that partitioned off the ballroom. The moment the curtains were parted, the officers very quickly identified the smell of human decomposition. Oh, man. Yeah. So, like, we're in for it here, boys. Yep. So, there they found, laid out on sleeping bags, faces covered, the bodies of Helen, Patricia, Frederick, and John Jr. John's confession letter had also been discovered along with the guns he had used to kill his family. From the instructions of his letters, they found the body of John's mother, Alma, upstairs. So he left that in the note. Hey, by the way, head up to the third floor. You'll find my mom. Don't miss her. Exactly. Um, There were bloody streak marks led from the kitchen to the ballroom that had indicated that all the murders happened in the kitchen. Um, There were also bags filled with blood-soaked paper towels in the kitchen, as well as a bloody mop. He did a fantastically shoddy job of cleaning up. I saw the pictures of it. Well, that makes sense. I mean, it was like he just kind of just half-assed, like wiped with a paper towel, like, okay, that's good enough, and just like tossed it in this little bin. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, an AB, APB, which, do you know what that stands for? All points bulletin. You are so smart. I had to double check myself because I was <laughs> like, wait, is it blah, blah, blah? Um, so they basically broadcast um, to alert area police departments with instructions to arrest a particular subject or subjects is what the bulletin was for. And um, those, so soon John's car was located at the JFK airport. But there were no records on, you know, at the airport that he had actually gotten on a flight. Probably sounded like this. Attention all units. John M. List. Arrest him on site. John M. List. Thank you. That was much better than my flubbing through that line. Thank you. Um, So basically, their leads ended at the discovery of his car. That was it. It just was a dead end from there. Sure. Why would it be? I mean, yeah, he didn't leave anything. Nope, he didn't. So the following August, the List mansion caught fire. And this was believed to be a case of arson. Yeah. Um, During the fire investigation, it was discovered that the stained glass ceiling that he laid his entire family under had been signed by Lewis Comfort Tiffany, which made it worth well over $100,000. Oh, wow. That piece alone would have like covered his financial woes. Wow. Apparently. Holy shit. Yep. What? The one piece in his home. You know, would have have solved. I'd give him great joy in telling him that. Fucking asshole. I would love to see it, actually. Um, I'll post a picture of it on social media. And I don't know if they had... They probably have pictures of the the ceiling, but um, the stained glass. But yeah, it's just kind of interesting that that just kind of just goes to show... That well, that's in, in these that, things could have been solved in the seventies. So, like now, it's probably worth a million. I exactly. Guess. So, over the years, any and all leads were investigated, though they all led right down dead end. The police and press tried to keep the story alive, so they would basically broadcast on various anniversaries of the murders. They um, broadcast on the first, the third, the fifth, and the tenth anniversaries of the murders. They also unsuccessfully tried to have the case presented on unsolved mysteries. Wow. So by 1989, it had been nearly 18 years since John had murdered his family. Wow. America's Most Wanted had come on the air a little over a year ago at this time and was already a hit on the Fox network. The show initially turned down um, Captain Frank 
Maranka's request to feature John Lusk's case, saying that the case was basically too old, too cold. They just thought, let's move on to newer cases. Uh-huh. However, John Walsh, does that name ring a bell to you? John Walsh, no. He was the host of Amer- um, America's Most Wanted. Okay. Also, he had a very strong... Um, you know, belief in wanting to find justice for huh. people like this because his own son was kidnapped from a shopping center. And and that was unsolved? Uh, actually, I think he was, Adam Walsh was his name. He was uh, later found murdered. Oh, my God. I believe he was found murdered. So he had a vested interest. Very in vested interest in... Bringing you know, people to justice. Exactly. So thank goodness John Walsh, um, who was the host, became aware of the case and had very strong feelings about John List. He referred to him as a coward, a child killer, and a son of a bitch. Well, and John Walsh, I agree with you. Coward, absolutely. That came to mind several times. That's usually, you know, the suicide. And, you know, he didn't want to do that. So I was like, well, I'll just kill my whole family. Like, exactly. Just step up, be a, a man or a woman or whatever, be a strong-willed person and step up to life. Sometimes life sucks, so you got to deal with it. Exactly. You made these mistakes. You You made bad financial decisions. You got fired from your job. Own up to it guy you don't sometimes life just just isn't fair kill your family your innocent family your teenage children um so walsh felt determined to bring john list to justice but needed to create an an image of what now he looks like in 1989 you know this is 18 years later long time yeah so walsh called on a onto a forensic sculptor named frank bender to create an age progress bust of john using the standard facial reconstruction measurements as well as a detailed psychological profile of him so what he had to do was he reached out to another person a forensic pathologist richard walter and got pictures of List's parents. He studied these photos to wow. see how he would have potentially aged. Yeah, it was really fascinating. It makes a lot of sense. Like my dad, you know, we have droopy eyes. I'm going to have more droopy eyes as I get older. Yeah, I'm going to look like a, that bulldog, that old cartoon bulldog. <laughs> um, super dog, super whatever. His I name know is. what you're underdog. talking underdog. Underdog. Yeah. yeah. I'm basically going to look like underdog when I'm 70. I look forward to that. Yes. And then my dad's little puff of hair, you know, that he has in the front and then like receding hairline. Like that's that's brilliant to look at the parents to see what they're, what, you know, potentially he's going to look like. Exactly. So all the information as well as his own intuition was used and a bust of what John would look like in his 60s was created. The bust was completed by placing glasses upon his face. So as his eyes would probably go. And well, oh, he, he had wore glasses. he wore glasses, of course, because he was in the finance uh, <laughs> yes. core. Yeah. So um, Bender chose a pair that someone of John's personality would choose. Wow. So he literally had to go to like a thrift shop and look through a bin of glasses and select what he felt a person of his personality at age six in his 60s would choose. Boring, I would imagine. So he basically found conservative glasses that had thick black frames. Okay. And um, the bus was now complete. So America's Most Wanted aired the case of John List on May 21st, 1989, and an estimated 22 million people watched the program. Holy shit, that's crazy. Huge, huge coverage. Um, Apparently, John had caught the tail end of the show (laughs) with his wife, who did not know his past. Wow. Of course not. Otherwise, she probably would have not married him. So his response after the fact was, I was perspiring like anything. Can't you totally imagine this dweeb saying that? Yeah, well, absolutely. 
So this is very strange, but his wife, he, John recalled that his wife did not seem to recognize him. Did it look like him? Did he so say it we'll, like him? We'll talk about okay, that. Okay, I figured. So former neighbors, however, did, even though his own wife didn't. His former neighbors from Denver did. They were true crime fans, Wanda Flannery and her daughter, Eva Mitchell. Good job. Uh, yes. And even before seeing the bust, even before that was presented, wow. they felt that it fit their former neighbor, Bob Clark, like all the descriptions they were using on this person. Wow. So it just kind of goes to show he really was like put he put himself into a box personality wise. Well, he's a dullard piece of shit, you know, and it doesn't rubs people the wrong way. So, I mean, yeah, yep. he sticks out like a sore thumb, even though he you know, keeps to himself. So the description they basically used on the show was soft spoken, always wore a suit, an accountant and a devout Lutheran. Oh, my God. That, that gave him away. Yep. I mean, how many you know devout Lutherans do you know? I don't even know one. So, I mean, you know, if you happen to know one, then it's like, okay, well, he was an accountant. He wore a suit all the time. Like, it's like boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Yet his own effing wife didn't recognize him. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't want to make assumptions, but... She... Okay, so now they bring on John's bust yeah. to the screen. Wanda and Eva were absolutely shocked. They're like, holy shit, that's Yep, him. yep. That's it looked Bob. just like Bob Clark. Oh, my God. Just like him. And they get on the right phone right away. down to the exact pair of glasses. Did it? What is it? The, the guy absolutely friggin' nailed it. Oh, my God. Yes, and it was only based on assumption of what his personality would have chosen, and Jeez. he hit the nail on the head. I'm going to say this whole story, you know, was kind of, it was kind of standard and it, it got fantastic at the end. Here. Oh, this is good. I know. This is what got me with the story. <laughs> I was like, yes, motherfucker, justice. <laughs> um, but this guy that did the boss was a friggin' badass. Yeah. I mean, Unreal. he was amazing. Wow. And we will put the pictures up of what John looked like compared to this bust. I can't wait. Oh my gosh. So immediately, Wanda and Eva called the tip line, and 11 days later, the FBI arrived at, quote-unquote, Bob Clark's house. <laughs> 11 days later, you said? 11 days later. Well, I mean, they, he well, knew he was fucked, right? Yes. I mean, he had to have known he was. He had He's looking to in the have. mirror, practically, I would guess. Right. So um, they arrive at Bob Clark's home in Richmond, Virginia. Just when he thought he was so crafty and everything, he's like, oh, mm -hmm. my God, they got me. Yep. So his new wife greeted the officers and informed them that Bob was at work as an accountant. When Wearing the, a suit. And he's <laughs> with his Lutheran. glasses. Yeah. <laughs> um, when the officers arrived at the office, they noted how striking he was compared to the bus they had been looking at. Like, wow, man, we got you, huh? And I put on the, I put in there, nailed it. <laughs> nailed it. So they asked him if he was Bob Clark. He said yes. They asked him if he was John List, and he denied it and continued to do so even after his fingerprints were a match <laughs> that had been taken from the prints he provided when he obtained his handgun permit. Now, I don't know if it's DNA or fingerprints, but it is possible to have the same... As someone else, but it's like. But when you suspect that somebody yes, is this like person and their fingerprints match, and they look just like John List, three hundred million one, something I'd like that. I'd say it's John yes, List. Yes, you're right. So um, when he had gotten his handgun, he had to give fingerprints, and they were a match. Yep. So List was arrested and charged with five counts of first degree murder. His trial began April second, nineteen ninety. This was eighteen and a half years after his murders. 
Um, he had been diagnosed by the court psychiatrist with OCD, which the defense said made him guilty of only second degree murder. The psychiatrist had then said that John showed no evidence of anything that approached genuine remorse. He is a cold, cold man was how he was described. He probably had some other mental issues too. Um, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, on April 11th, nine hours after deliberation, John was found guilty on all five counts of first degree murder and given the maximum sentence allowed at the time, five consecutive life terms. Wow. The courtroom erupted in cheers when the Ooh. sentence was read aloud. And I said, sweet justice. <laughs> Sucka. Sucka. So John Walsh was not happy with the sentence and felt that List should receive the death penalty. Um, many people credit the amazing work of Frank Bender, which Frank Bender, oh, he rocked it. That's the guy that made the bus? Yep. But okay. however, sadly, um, Bender did die in 2011. He passed away from mesothelioma. Mm. Um, later, List tried to appeal his case. He claimed that he had been suffering from PTSD from his time in combat during World War II. But federal appeals court rejected this. I did wonder that, but doesn't give you the okay to kill your family. Right. And this was so calculated. And this is just, there's no excuse for this. Yeah. And then List did eventually voice a a degree of remorse for his crimes. He said, I wish I had never done what I did. I've regretted my action and prayed for forgiveness ever since. This is what he had told Connie Chung during an interview in 2002. I remember Connie Chung. I do too. So, John died of complications of pneumonia at age 82, not that long ago, on March 21st, uh, 2008. He was in prison at St. Francis Medical Center in Trenton, New Jersey, and on reporting his death, John was referred to as the Boogeyman of Westfield. And that is the story of John List, where... He got his, what was, um, you know, deserved 18 and a half years later. And he probably thought he's done. He's like, I got off scot-free. They'll yep. never find me. And then thank goodness, America's Most Wanted picked it up. Otherwise, he could have just gone on forever. I no doubt about it. There's no way they would have yep. caught him. No, nope, they wouldn't. They would definitely never have caught him. And thank God for those, like, uh, that police officers or whoever kept on following up with it, trying mm-hmm. to get it on air, whoever it was. Yeah, I, they um, always wanted to keep the um, crime fresh despite the years that were passed. Yeah, incredible and job. That just kind of goes to show that it's never too late to find somebody. I mean, look at the um, Golden State Killer. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was in what was that the 1970s that was going on? Would they find him two years, last year? Yeah, Zodiac Killer. The Zodiac Killer. I don't know. Is is that for certain him? Yeah, I think so. No, I didn't really read up on that one. Yeah, they found him. But or um, he's dead already. But they found who it was. The whole point is, it doesn't matter how much time has passed; these people still need to see justice. Well, the problem is, you say that to a cop. You know, we hear about all these big ones that are found, but in the meantime, there's thousands yeah. that are unsolved. And every day, there's yeah. more and more. Yeah, and it's like they're looking at this stack. We hear about these things in the papers. It's like, oh my gosh, yes, let's try harder. And it's like, yeah, we we definitely should, but we've only got so many people. So. Right. But the point is, even after almost, you know, coming up on 20 years, they'd never let it go. Well, it comes up to the family usually, you know, or some, some kind of family members who really want to find it. And mm-hmm. I wonder who was responsible for keeping it it, it, it may have just been the police officers. That's fantastic. Work. Yeah, which I mean, is amazing that they never let it go. Yeah, so, unbelievable. Yeah. Well, good. Glad he uh, got caught. I'm a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. And um, well, man alive. 
It's uh, if you're having some crazy thoughts, man, get some help. Get some help because everybody wants to help. Everybody would much rather you get you some help get help rather than kill your entire family. I'd rather gladly pay for somebody's food stamps rather than them doing something bad to children. Absolutely, and their wife, you know. So, well, good job. That well, was, thanks. Uh, that was, you know, was, I knew you would appreciate the ending. <laughs> I knew the story itself is just a major, major, major bummer. Yeah. Who wants to hear a story about a psychopath? meticulously killing his whole family clearly you not me yes but i was happy with the way that it ended yeah and now i'm feeling like these um placebo effects of my uh decaf cappuccino yeah. or whatever it is espresso rocking a little i'm bit? like oh, i'm so jittery. jittery i mean there's got to be some caffeine in i there. don't know they didn't take it all out if this keeps me up at night i'm gonna go to nespresso's company and take a dump on their property well nestle is a horrible company so i they, they they're, they're actually a very bad company oh how do you know um they like sell water they take water for free and then they sell it in bottles and they take like people's water sources basically so they're like partially responsible for a lot of the like drought stuff and all. interesting yeah. i can't speak on that because i don't know of it but I don't, that I read... sounds really really shitty yeah i mean it's it's a basically capitalism 101 they take they get water for free they put it in bottles and then they sell it for like two dollars why are we letting this happen that's a great question maybe we'll cover that in another we podcast. need to shut this operation down okay well i'll get to work on that next week i'll Mike, tell you please maybe i'll shut down nestle next do week some, okay. do something about this guys i will do it i promise next week nestle will be shut down <laughs> hopefully nestle doesn't sue us <laughs> ah fuck them yeah come <laughs> fuck after you, us ne- fuck you nestle yeah good luck come at me nestle we'll see what happens <laughs> i'll beat you up well i'm glad we're supporting this company by drinking nespresso pods in our nespresso machine drink a delicious nespresso cappuccino today <laughs> i'm shutting them down i'm shutting them down <laughs> meanwhile oh, i'm spending 30 dollars every month on nespresso tag yeah you are. yeah i, I don't you're even jittery. know you're jittery you're shaking I'm like really are you sweaty <laughs> Oh, my God. Uh, we got to do something about this, folks. All right. I'm going to go get hosed off in the yard. Yeah. Sounds good. I'm really hot. Thanks for listening. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.